Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice. And with me, as always, is my good buddy, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Doing well, Ian. Doing well. How are things up your way? Oh, you know, just living that new normal, you know. Things are, um, you know, slowly progressing forward in a, in a positive way in terms of numbers are going down and, and things seem to be on the other side of the mountain so to speak and you know i've since gone back to work and you know it's a interesting interesting time to be working are you uh, are you rocking a, are you rocking a cool mask or what i have a mask yes i haven't uh i wear a different one every day so i didn't you know like uh i should have put like the you know the logo on the front or something you know my neighbors made me one, um, like very early on. I was actually getting ready to record a podcast, and my neighbor texted me and said, "Hey, can you come outside? I've got something for you." So I walked out there, and uh, this is when like we couldn't get masks at work or anywhere, right when it first started. And mm-hmm. uh, he was just like, "Hey, uh, we appreciate you being a pharmacist and, and helping people. We made you something, and it's a uh, it's a Star Wars mask. It has like stormtroopers and Darth Vader on it." And really? so, uh, yeah, so I have that, but then I, I almost pulled the trigger on something last night, but I didn't, I'm a big Megadeth fan and they had a sale going one of their shirts, you know, their, their kind of mascot is Vic Rattlehead and it said something like Dr. Vic is in or something like that. And it's a shirt and they're going to give all the proceeds from it to their crew. But if you ordered a shirt, you got a Megadeth mask. <laughs> um, and so I almost got that to, uh, Maybe wear to work and uh, kind of freak people out with the mega death mask, but people are getting uh, they're they're getting creative on on, on ways to to sell things and uh, get money to people, which I applaud. I've seen a lot of people doing stuff like that, offering a a mask with you know with a purchase, and it's one of those things. Well, fifteen twenty years, we'll look back on and say that's some cool memorabilia came out of all this. Yeah, the COVID nineteen mask that was limited edition. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, I do think it is important for people to to remember though that uh, just because you know numbers and things show improvement doesn't mean you're out of the woods, and uh, you know you should continue the same behavior for for some time just to to really be certain everybody's gonna oh, be okay. Yeah, because I mean, we don't want to we don't want to have to do this again. Yeah, and, it's, it's it's a rough situation. And I keep viewing everything through the prism of we got to get back to live music at some point. I know, and you know, it's see, I I get so many varying reports on that that I have no idea when that's going to come to be. It's become such a, a thing over time because you know this is you know however many days we're into this, and you know you start to see backlash from some people now, and you know maybe it's like frustration or something, but you know they're blaming you know people staying home on the you know the downfall of you know certain businesses and 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 things. It's like, but you know what are you supposed to do? It's such a, it's such an unprecedented thing that you don't know what the right thing to do is, you know? It's like, I've talked with my wife, you know, if I were the president or if I were the governor of whatever state you're living in, there's, there's bad, bad outcomes legitimately possible either way you go with it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just, 
I think very few times in life you, you have something that's this convoluted that you make the wrong decision. It could have disastrous consequences, honestly, for, for years to come. But let's move on to uh, something a little more positive, if I could quickly mention. Uh, 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 very recently, my side venture, the Classic Wax podcast, did uh, make its debut with the uh, first episode being uh, about the uh, Metallica album Load. And, of course, my first guest would be none other than, than David, of course. And It was an honor to be on the, be the first guest. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. We record, actually recorded that like five months ago. And so yes. uh, it was good to go back and, uh, and hear our, our discussion on that with Load. A, uh, Load is basically, um, is basically Metallica's by your side. Yeah, um, I would say so. But uh, I, I, like I said on, on the thing, I, my attitude on it's changed over the years. And actually, in the last couple of days, I've been listening to a lot of Metallica. Uh, that, that, I mean, I love Metallica. I, I, I've loved them since the Black Album came out. And uh, I was like 14 or 15. And then, of course, I went back to like Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets and all of that. But the musicianship they have is just off the charts, especially like... For whatever reason, that that long solo at the end of one live just blows my mind every time. Oh yeah, it's great. Do you have the uh, Cunning Stunts DVD? That's what I was I was trying to say, and I and I was worried I oh, was, was about to, I was worried I was going to mess that one up. So <laughs> I was telling somebody at work one time as a Metallica fan to ask about it, and I of course got it you know mixed up and uh anyway it was kind of embarrassing, but it is what yeah. it is, and they did that for that reason. And that's a that's a harsh one to. To hit somebody with that, that's that's that's, yeah. that's the one you can't come back from. No, no. I mean, you know, I'm up in New York. Yeah, you hear it a lot more often. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I mean, I always like that DVD though. It's a great performance on there, and uh, I think that was actually on the Load tour, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, them. They had the short hair, and uh, they're a great band. And I, you know, what's the album? Just Hardwired. So, uh, what's and that one? The name of it? The one that just came out? Hardwired to Self Destruct. Yeah. Hardwired. Yeah. I thought it was too long. I think you chop it down to one album, you have a really good album. Death Magnetic, and this is going to get some hate mail, Death Magnetic is like in my top three Metallica albums. Death Magnetic is a great album. The problem with Death Magnetic is... The compression. That is overly compressed. I mean, if you get that Guitar Hero version, you know, that fan-made version, it's it's a, it's much, much better. And actually, the high-res download version of it is cleaned up a bit, too. Where do you go um, to get that? Like hdtracks.com or places okay. like that, you know, and uh, you can get the high res download, and it's it's much more dynamically sound. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's anything's better than the original CD version. The vinyl, I think, is is decent too, but it's also recorded by uh, a later day Rick Rubin, who doesn't, you know, I I don't know about you, but his his more recent work doesn't really buzz me like his other stuff used to. I mean, he did Wildflowers, and he did, you know, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and some really exciting stuff, and he kind of I don't know. He kind of phones it in more recently. I mean, he doesn't have anything to prove. No, but I just I didn't really care for you know because it was a big thing. You know, they're not working with Bob Rock; they're working with Rick Rubin, and I, I expected this this gargantuan album. And I think actually Bob Rock would have handled the sound of that thing more sufficiently. I, I don't think Bob Rock was interested in. I think there was a mutual parting as 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 much as people like to think that they gave Bob Rock the boot or whatever. I don't think Bob Rock was interested in doing a solid metal record. He just wasn't down for it and that's what they wanted to do which is what they did i like you know the songs some of them are a minute or so too long but i think it's nine or ten songs on there and probably seven of them i classify as like really good so the cool thing about that guitar hero 
fan-made version is there's actually 11 songs on it because there's one song i think the song's called suicide and redemption or, or something of that that's, nature that's on it yeah but there's two versions they have on there one has kirk hammett solo and one has james hetfield solo oh. so it's like they you get an extra little bonus there because i guess they both took a crack at the solo in the uh in the studio but we go from metallica so we do have to mention real quick our uh our fearless leader, should we say, Chris Robinson. He was on uh, Instagram again recently, and uh, this time he was uh, kind of doing an instructional how-to on uh, the proper way to uh, roll a joint. So uh, <laughs> for all the uh, all hey, the heads out there, you got to learn from the best. That's right. He he actually is, is. It's been funny his Instagram stuff. He seems to be having a good time with it. Which you know they kind of notoriously avoid. You know I I would think for the most part. The last ten years, when you had stuff about on social media from the Crows or even from Magpie or Rich or or the CRB, it was probably not them doing it. But we had the video from Rich, "What Is Home," that he mm-hmm. recorded out there in Tennessee, and then uh, we've had the uh, Ask uh, Chris Robinson segment on Instagram, and then we learned how to roll a joint the other night. So uh, who knows what's next? Yeah, I mean. Honestly, man, it's like, you know, it's like learning how to cook a steak from Gordon Ramsay, you know, yeah. like it's that's the guy you want to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I, um, I I enjoyed that. Uh, what is home performance? I know you're not uh, terribly big on the song. I always liked that song. I saw a, f- a few folks, you know, mentioned I, it sounded like they were unhappy, but I, I, I couldn't be sure that it, he kind of went back to the before the frost arrangement of it. But acoustically, what other arrangement are you going right, to do? That's all you can the do. The one from the magpie salute that was. Uh, arranged for a, a full band you know right i agree it wouldn't sound right you know right so of course I, he would go back to that arrangement so this week we have a very special guest we contacted this gentleman and after a little uh little persuasion we had him come on and quite frankly one of the most interesting guys we've had on and, and we've had on some very interesting folks and that is uh mr drew consalvo and drew did uh, sound for the Black Crows starting in '98. Uh, he kind of came on board. Yeah, did the you know the monitors, the on-stage sound uh, came on in '98 when they were doing the Show Enough kind of tour just before By Your Side and things, and 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 worked with them, you know, straight through. And then he also did did work with the Magpie Salute. So he's been around the camp for a long time, and he had definitely had some interesting tales to tell, and was a very uh, very very fun guest. So uh, you know, we think everybody's. Uh, going to enjoy that as much as we did yeah it, he was he was a great guest he was uh i think he was a very honest guest he had some great stories and uh he has worn a lot of hats in that black crows incorporated what and also with magpie salute very seasoned um veteran of what he does and had a lot of uh, a good perspective on things and um you know he speaks fondly of his time with with the crows and and really enjoyed that and with the magpie so i i thought it was really good we we actually recorded it several weeks ago i think we recorded it the same weekend we did jeff dunn both jeff dunn and and i believe drew are, are open to possibly coming on again down down the road and so uh we'd love to have both of those on again and maybe have a little more of a targeted topic uh to have them on for because uh our interview with jeff and with drew was just kind of wide sweeping kind of like a career retrospective for both of them. But um, I think diehard fans of uh, the Crows and and, and and hardcore fans of the Magpie Salute are all going to get something out of this interview. Here's Drew Consalvo. Yes. Thank you very much, everybody. And we'll, uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Greetings of New York 
Right, David. So, as you know, from time to time, we've been uh, having some very, very uh, exciting guests, and today is no exception. Joining us today is Mr. Drew Consalvo. Drew, how are you doing? Doing all right, guys. So, I mean, you know, we just wanted to you know, chat with you a little bit about uh, you know your time both with the Black Crows and, uh, of course, with the Magpie Salute. Uh, let's take it right back to the beginning. Uh, you know, how did you start with the Black Crows, and what was your you know original capacity with them? Well, I. Uh got pulled in in 1998. I was uh, part of the class that included uh, Audley Freed and uh, Sven Pippian. So that's that's when I came on board. So it was after Three Snakes, but before By Your Side. 
uh, it was a period that I know that a lot of fans were like trying to figure out what the hell was going on. At that <laughs> and uh, that's when I came uh, on board. I, um, I was down in San Diego doing a corporate gig, um, doing audio on a corporate gig for BMW. And a phone call came in from Smoothest Smythe, um, a man who uh, uh, is a luminary in my particular field, uh, one of the original roadies. And he um, he said, mate, I think I've got a good gig for you, you know. And uh, it, uh, it was kind of funny at the time because um, I knew that Mark Bodding was their tour manager. And Bodding and I almost came to blows, um, I don't know, earlier that year at another gig uh, at the Beverly Hilton when he was tour managing, no doubt. And uh, I said to Smoother, I'm like, man, I don't think, um, I don't think this is a good call. I don't, uh, I don't know if it's a fit or not. And I told him the story and he goes, let me call Chappie. And he calls up Mark Bodding and they have a little talk about it. And, um, they said, yeah, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's give uh, Drew a shot. And, uh, so uh, within about uh, a month, I was on a plane uh, to Atlanta to uh, start rehearsals with um, the Black Crows. And then uh, that continued for quite some time afterwards. So what was your first official capacity with the band? What was your first official was their, I was their monitor engineer. Yeah, I was hired to do their stage monitors. Um, it is my bread and butter. It's my forte and has been since about uh, 97 when I moved uh, from the front of house position as a preference to the stage end as a preference, I prefer to be the monitor engineer. Uh, for those listeners who may not know what that means, um, there's typically typically two engineers uh, on every rock show. Uh, one's mixing for the audience, the other one is mixing for the musicians. It's my preference to mix for the musicians, and that's known as a monitor engineer. So whether they're wearing in-ear monitors or you see those loudspeakers at their feet, uh, that's my gig, uh, is to create a separate and distinctly unique uh, uh, mix for each engine, or each uh, musician on the stage based on their preferences and whatever it takes to help them maintain pitch and tempo and have a good night at the office. So uh, I was hired as a monitor guy and it came in at a really cut rate uh for the show enough tour well we recently interviewed uh jeff dunn on here yeah you did and uh talked to him about kind of his path he had a kind of a unique path to getting to where he was what's kind of your your background in it how do you get to that point because i'm 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 always fascinated by people that find these jobs in the music industry and kind of how they got to that point yeah me too pal (laughs) (laughs) The path is is kind of weird, man. Um, I mean, in this day and age, there's a lot of uh, colleges that offer production classes and courses and and, uh, private entities that have all sorts of opportunity for uh, professional development in that field. But by and large, it is uh, just a, it's mostly a case of right place at the right time. It's not a it's not a career field that tends to advertise or at least outside of its own very closely knit field. Does do you see real ads for hey, need a monitor guy to go do a rock tour? So uh, <laughs> my background on that, I mean, it was a little more than a decade previous that I kind of chucked in my day job. It was at a cake party and I told a lie and, uh, 
I'll never forget it. Uh, I've, I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. You know how the keg party, there's always the different rooms and there's always a different vibe. Well, I was in the kitchen keg party where the keg is. And I'm standing around. There's a couple of guys. There's several people talking. But in particular, there, there were these two cats talking over by the keg. And I heard one of the guys say to the other guy, he goes, uh, something about being a sound man. And I had no part of this conversation whatsoever, but I interrupted. I felt like I had the right to interrupt this thing. <laughs> I mean, I owned a 16-channel mixing console. and had some speakers <laughs> and mics, you know. I, I interrupt these guys, and I go, hey, you a sound guy? And uh, Jeff goes, yeah. And I said, hey, me too. And there's the lie, right? Because, I mean, yeah, I had some gear, but by no means was I in gear. And I said, me too. And he goes, great. What are you doing Monday and Tuesday? And I said, nothing. And he goes, well, why don't you come by Madame Wong's West? On Monday, and I'll show you who pays you, or where you put the mics away, because I need somebody to fill in for me on Tuesday. That's how it started. And so I started working for 40 bucks a night, mixing three or four bands a night, while obviously keeping a day job. And then the gigs just grew and grew and grew. And uh, I eventually started working in TV, uh, doing a lot of TV work, a lot of special events, a lot of corporate gigs, uh, a lot of one-offs, a lot of festivals, uh, telethons, just all sorts of stuff. And I thought I would never, ever, ever tour. I was the guy. I lived out in L.A. I'm like, man, I'm just going to sleep in my own bed. I'm not touring. And uh, I said, yeah, to my first tour. And uh, away we went. <laughs> and so uh, a, a few years, just a mere few years after saying yes to my first tour, did I hook up with the Black Crows. You had mentioned it just before. You kind of walked into the Black Crows in, a, in an odd time period for them. What was the vibe like in, in the in the camp at that time, <laughs> trying to figure themselves out? Or uh, that? Uh, you know, there was you know I didn't know anybody, so I couldn't really tell that there was a really deep reinvention. Uh, when we'd be out there, when I'd be out there at the end of the night wrapping up the the mics and uh, the cables and you know starting the loadout, you know, uh, people would be on the barricade and they would say shit like, uh, "Hey man, what the hell? What's going on? There's no jams. It sounds like they're rehearsed or something, man." You know, so all of the disgruntled Americans were uh, were like, man, looking for some 20 minute long thing that didn't transpire, uh, you know. And so it's like, I don't know. So I found these stickers one day at a at a festival that just said, shut up, hippie. <laughs> and I started, started getting so tired of hearing about yeah, everything's different. And to me, I was like, damn, this is a smoking rock band to work for you know i like these guys are on fire you know it's like i didn't know from you know i worked with them once in 1996 or 7 in california on a one-off and so i got to see that lineup with johnny and uh with mark you know obviously eddie and that was uh that was cool i mean i really i was blown away because i mean i bought shake your money maker when it came out because it wasn't pet shop boys you know i mean we were hearing <laughs> We were hearing all this other stuff going on, and suddenly people were playing guitars, and I was like really happy about American-sounding guitars. So, what kind of music do you gra- did you gravitate to before the end? I mean, were you were you into stuff like the Stones and? So- yeah, yeah, no, I, that, that, that's that, you know coming across the the Black Crows as a gig uh, as as my main gig was like my film because I was definitely a fan of. You know, I mean, but I I run the gamut uh, from you know digging really hard the Sex Pistols and Dream Syndicate and, um, uh, uh, you know, Dylan, uh, you know, just all over, all over the, the spectrum, you know, but 
my main love was blues-based rock and roll music and blues. And so uh, it was kind of hand in glove, you know, and and I, I liked making it loud, which was a good thing because that's what was required in that gig was like really... The, the guitars were so damn loud, especially in those days that, I mean, to get up uh, on top of them with the stage monitor system was like really a, a chore. And uh, it was one that I relished. Well, Jeff, so, Jeff told us a story that they were playing uh, a, shed, <laughs> a shed somewhere. And the, I guess the decibel police were there and they're like, 113 the cutoff. And he's there with yeah. this little microphone. He said, all right, you're at 112. And he goes, I haven't turned the PA on yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But JD's favorite saying about that band and mixing that band out front was, uh, was, yeah, man, Drew, I tell you. When I turn up a solo, it doesn't get louder. It just gets wider. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty true, you know. But, man, I loved working with Jeff Dunn. We had had a blast. Based on the type of music you say that you you like, I got to think it's a pinch-me moment when you find out they're going to tour with Jimmy Page. Yeah, that was that was pretty intense. I mean, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a full circle moment for me because physical graffiti really changed my musical life. Uh, hearing that record, uh, I can re- I recall it distinctly because not only did I hear the record for the first time in junior high, it's the first time I ever heard somebody's really good component stereo system. And I heard the side with uh, In My Time of Dying, Custer Pie, The Rover, you know, that, that, uh, I heard that on a good stereo for the first time. And I'm like, man, this is what I'm going to do. And the next thing you know, I'm buying Zeppelin posters and every um, record, every album that I could get my hands on, you know, just totally wearing a groove right through Led Zeppelin 2 and Houses of the Holy and Physical Graffiti. And, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that was that was uh, uh, it was definitely a high point for me. I think it was a high point for everybody in the organization for a period of time. It certainly was for everybody on the crew. I mean, there were moments in rock history there that only me and a few other people were privy to. Now, I've seen a YouTube video floating around out there online that captures a few of those when we were in rehearsals for the top of that thing, and I don't even know who the hell the camera on that thing because i mean this is before iphones and shit like that you know <laughs> i don't recall a video camera in that room at all but then again those were the 90s and I, it might explain something but those moments in rock history that like those rehearsals it was like watching your friend's garage band trying to work up a zeppelin tune while the guy that wrote the tunes was showing you exactly how he played them <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, it's like, hey, man, these guys are my pals. But man, look at that. Jimmy Page is showing up. <laughs> like, this is fucking amazing. Yeah. And so it was it was great to answer that question. It was uh, there were moments. He really cranked that band to a different level, too, man, especially with uh, uh, Gorman's drumming, man. After after doing all that stuff, I just noticed uh, when we came back and we just started doing Black Crows uh, uh, things again, that it was he was. He was in a new place, man, after that. It uh, kind of put a spring in his step, I think. You know, he uh, he really brought it on those uh, 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 after those runs. It was it was palpable to me, at least, you know, from somebody that watched show after show night after night. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to agree 100% on that. I, I've always felt that his uh, his drumming went up a notch um, following the Jimmy Page stuff. And on the, on the Lions tour, he was really really hitting his stride uh, it's a shame i'm because obviously the band took a 
at the time, which was going to be an, an, an indefinite hiatus at that point. So mm. what what did you do following that point? Oh, well, you know, whenever those guys went in to write a record or something, you know, it's not like I was on the clock doing anything for them. I'm a typical freelance engineer. You know, during that time, I, uh, you know, interspersed other artists. I worked with uh, with Moby at that time, and I traveled around uh, the world with Moby doing Japan and Europe. A couple of domestic runs back over to Japan, uh, et cetera. Then in 2003, I hooked up with Ario Speedwagon and was Ario Speedwagon's monitor engineer. And I stayed there until uh, I got the call. Uh, it was Steve Gorman in the background going, tell him I'm back, tell him I'm back, tell him I'm back. Uh, 2005, when I told Ariota, um, I would hand it over to another monitor guy and I would move on. Thank you very much. And that monitor guy's still there with those guys. But yeah, that's uh, that, that. And then in 05, I came aboard. They had already had a guy, but it wasn't quite the fit I think that they were looking for um, you got to kind of tell when things are taking a left turn and maybe somebody on stage is not hearing that left turn and you got to maybe accentuate something in their mix that they ordinarily don't have there as much you know to just kind of help that process unfold so during the show are you at the soundboard or are you on the, are you on the side of the stage there is a soundboard at the side of the okay, stage. Okay. Yeah, stage left, uh, you know, close enough to get hit with a beer bottle. Um, <laughs> in, in my in my line of work, monitor engineer is known as the hot seat because usually their duration is very um, is very short with an artist because you're the first line of fire. You know, if anybody's having a bad day, they look over their left shoulder. There's the monitor guy right there. You know, it's a pretty easy target. Plus, uh, uh, some people are just never satisfied. And there's nothing I can do to change someone's ears, you know, uh, but the frustration is oftentimes taken out on that position and hence it's known as the hot seat. And so it's not unusual for someone to only last a tour or two with a uh, um, group of musicians who um, have built reputations as being uh, particular or demanding. So you were, you were lucky because you got, you were there for 05, 06. How special was that for you just as a music fan? Because as I personally think that was their, their apex. Yeah, it was intense, man. Um, that whole thing up until when Mark buggered off, that was, that was a really special run. You know, every, the, the thing was firing on all cylinders, man. And, uh, it just was, uh, it was a spectacle nightly. I mean, hell you guys saw it, right? Yeah. It was a spectacle. I mean, uh, you know, for someone who's done, I don't know, close to 1200 shows with uh, one band, you know, uh, that that period of time really does stand out as, a, a, you know, a kind of a resurgent force before the um, sort of malaise of the, the road and the falling back into old habit patterns um, revisited. Now, what was it like, you know, conversely, after Mark left in 06? Well, I tell you, I tell you, Paul Stacey was a damn hero. Uh, oh, yeah. He, he came in and saved everybody's collective asses on that one. <laughs> his, his tenure was short, obviously, you know, because he was a fill-in guy while they're looking for another stage right guitarist. But, man, he came in and just kind of stepped up to the plate and saved, saved everybody's asses. I'm talking band and crew alike so that we could keep that juggernaut rolling forward. You know, of course, there's a little hitch in your get along. You know, you kind of truncate your set list a little bit to fit what can be accomplished. It was a, you, you could feel you could feel some some musical searching, you know, uh, and and at the same time, there was that typical sort of cavalier attitude 
um, which I think you have to have some degree of hubris uh, to uh, swagger like that musically and swagger like that as a as a unit. Now, I've always been uh, curious to know when, because obviously you mentioned Paul Stacey and a lot of fans, a lot of fans of the Black Crows are very critical of anybody that isn't Mark Ford. Yeah. I've always had an appreciation for each guy. I feel like you do that uh, Paul really stepped in and saved the day. Wow. Does, do these uh, opinions from the fans, do they get back to the, to the, do you guys hear about that? Does the band oh, hear sure. about that? Yeah. yeah well, especially uh, more so in the latter days because of the damn social interwebs, you know, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, you gotta really compartmentalize and, and, uh, you know, everybody's got a damned opinion. Uh, you, it's one of the reasons that I don't prefer doing front of house, you know, uh, mixing for the audiences because everybody out there has got a different damned opinion. And I'd rather just deal with seven or nine opinions on stage rather than, you know, a shed full of, of opinion. And yeah, it gets back, but, uh, I think it varies from individual to individual of how much stock you put into that. You know, it's obvious that everybody had their favorite. I thought that Audley did a damn bang up job uh, in what he did, you know, um, just watching him nightly as a guitarist. Um, he was really good. Now, would it be the the fit that everyone was uh, hungry for, that everybody was was um, you know, clamoring for from the fan base? I don't know. I wasn't one of those people. You know, I'm just standing back witnessing from a clinical perspective a rock band out there just kicking ass. Right. You know, I, I had no uh, previous allegiances or loyalties or any of that kind of stuff. And so when I came in and Audley was playing guitar, I'm like, damn, this is a good thing. I had, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, I'd only done one previous gig with the band, with, with Mark and, and Johnny. So I wasn't uh, uh, kind of tainted in that way in terms of being opinionated or uh, uh, attached to any particular view musically well drew let's fast forward a little bit obviously you know the crows go on to tour for two more album cycles and then they have the tour in 13 how does how do you wind up with magpie like how does how does that go down because we've heard about how rich and mark connected how do you get the call and are you how excited are you when you hear that they're going to put that thing together well rich and i kept in pretty close contact um throughout that um that sort of uh, that period there that there was no Black Crows. And I, I did Rich Robinson tours in 20, hell, I don't know, 11 and 12. I came in and uh, helped a, fr a friend out. It wasn't, uh, you know, my uh, typical market segment at the time. And but Rich called and he wanted me to go out and work with him. So I went out and worked with him. And so one day I was out on another tour. I can't remember. I think I was with. Uh, Pat Benatar or Amos Lee at the time. I can't remember. The phone phone rang and it was Rich. And so I picked up, you know, this wasn't unusual. We would, you know, shoot the shit a lot. Um, and he says, hey, man, I got this concept. What would you think, you know, if uh, we were to get together and do some originals uh, with a, if I was to get a band together and do uh, some originals and do uh, uh, some Black Crows uh, covers, you know, to do some Black Crows stuff and, uh, had some members of the Black Rose in the band. And says, all I got to do is find a name for this, you know? And I said, I think it's a great idea. I mean, Dead and Company is out there doing stuff. These people are out there doing stuff, you know? I said, I think, uh, I think you know, if you play it right and it's an homage, 
I think that it's probably a really good and workable uh, concept. Um, that was just me offering my opinion. I mean, you know, obviously he already had something in mind, but he said, uh, then later I got a, an email from him and he said, I need you to draw up a stage plot for the Magpie Salute. And so I'm like, well, I guess he's chosen a name. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so yeah, I was in discussions with, with uh, Rich bringing this thing up off the ground. And then we got the news that Eddie died. And um, that was just, Rich was like, man, I don't even know if I should go on with this thing now. You know, what, what do we do now? You know, those are sad days. I miss, I miss Eddie Harsh like nobody's business. Drew, everybody seems to have like a, a funny Ed story. So do you have a funny one that you can tell us yeah. that uh, maybe we haven't heard? <laughs> man, Eddie, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with Eddie stories, man. Some of them I'm just not going to share because <laughs> they're, they're just personal, you know. One that comes to mind is uh, he was living in Detroit at the time and I was living in L.A. And the phone rings at like, Two o'clock in the morning, right? And I look down, and it's Eddie Harsh, right? So I pick up the phone. I'm like, hey, Ed, man, what are you doing? He's like, oh, man, what are you doing? I'm like, uh, I'm like dude, it's uh, kind of late. He goes, this is the time of day I, I, I talk to my West Coast friends. I'm like, All right. I'm like, well, that means it's like five o'clock in the morning your time, man. He goes, yeah, man, I know. He goes, I just I, I got depressed, man. It's just been bothering me. He goes, what do you think about this Monica Lewinsky thing? <laughs> and i'm like two o'clock in the morning i just like you know just rolled over and picked up the phone you know and here's eddie harch wanting to talk about the monica Lewinsky affair with uh with uh president clinton at the time and i'm like man i'm like can we, can, can we just pick this up some other time man? another time i remember we were uh we were we were in japan and uh there was this 19th century piano and Eddie Harsh sat down at this thing man and just started doing what he did you know and it's this this piano this instrument sounded just glorious and he was just playing it wonderfully and you would think that the shopkeeper would have like admired what was happening on this on this instrument but he was just freaking out and his English wasn't very good and our Japanese sucked and so uh (laughs) It finally came around to it that he didn't care that Eddie was playing this piano so much, but this uh, bench that he on was like a really prized antique bench. <laughs> he would prefer him to not be sitting on rocking out so hard. And he's like, oh, man, this guy just doesn't get it. <laughs> and we left. But, I mean, that's just scratching the surface, man. There are so many Eddie Marsh you know, walking around Philly with him looking for a pair of black stretch jeans to, you know, all of the hilarity. I mean, so many times I'd be around Eddie Harsh, you know, I I felt like I was doing sit-ups, you know, because I'd be laughing so hard. But when he would, when he would get on a roll and start riffing, man, it was, uh, it was a thing of beauty, man. It was a thing to behold. You know, I, I miss Eddie Harsh, man. And I, <laughs> I worked right behind him, you know, like, so his... His uh, key rig was just on stage. He was the nearest to me all the time. I was, he was my stage left brother. Uh, when I would leave the stage after sound check, I would always leave his mix open because invariably, man, he would just be up there doing some shit for an hour or 
two hours, however long, until we had to kick him off the stage because doors were getting open. You know, he would just he would just play and play and play. And some of the most amazing music I've ever heard happened not necessarily in the show, but just Eddie doing stuff on his own. And I'd, I'd throw stuff at him. I'd be like, Eddie, hey man, play me the um, I don't know. Remember the theme song to uh, Perry Mason show? He'd be like, bang, amazing. He'd play anything. Unbelievable. Miss him like the Dickens. I, I understand Rich's consideration to not maybe want to continue with the Magpie salute uh, in light of Ed's passing, but obviously he did. I mean, yeah. what was the the vibe starting that tour? It seemed, you know, from a fan standpoint, somebody went to quite a few shows. Uh, at least on to start with in 2017, it was very celebratory of the Black Crows music, and it seemed like everybody oh, yeah. was, was really into it. Was that the case? Yeah, well, what do you think about that opening at the Gramercy, man? I mean, that was a reveal right there, dude, you know? and Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of that was uh, Rich's idea in terms of how that production was to happen. The Kabuki was, was my thing, uh, and the, uh, you know, just the whole Green Alien, the whole the lighting cues, the, everything about that was just total uh gratitude and a um, shout out to eddie harsh man and um i mean because i was there when eddie uh, uh when eddie's innards broke and we had to leave him in belgium and uh we insisted on setting up his key rig the crew i mean i remember we, when we floated the idea it's like man we're gonna set up eddie's rig anyway whether he's here or not. And so then we got that damn blow up green alien and wrote ED on its forehead and taped his hands, taped his hands with gaff tape to the keys. <laughs> just, and so our lighting designer at the time, Stan Green, who also may he rest in peace, uh, Stan Green, uh, whenever the key break would come in and thorn or anything, and there were no keys there, he would still have the spots right on the, off the, off the alien, and it would just be no key break, but he would still have the cues built as if Eddie were over there playing it. You know? <laughs> so we would light that green thing up, you know. Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, and then I, I remember when Eddie came back after that, man, he just was so proud of his scar. <laughs> I can't count the times he lifted up his shirt to show me his on his scrawny frame his new belly scar. Well, there's a uh, there's a Black Crow's message board uh, called BlackCrow's.net, and a lot of times the cover page on that it's a picture of him and he's got his pants unzipped a little yeah, bit, man. and he's got his shirt pulled up, and you can see the the trocar where they put the trocars in for his surgery. Yeah, I saw it more times than I needed to. <laughs> So, I mean, obviously, for, for people like Ian and I who are diehard Black Crows fans, those that first Magpie run was just a celebration of all things music, you know, influences, the Crows, you know, solo stuff. I saw them in New Orleans, and they played Don't Wake Me, and Rich goes, I haven't played this in 25 years. It had to yeah. be cool just to see, this, see them, the enthusiasm they had for the material. It was... Um I don't know how to put this, but it was a moment of true brotherhood. There was a shining moment there at the top of that thing that I will um, pretty much always cherish, where it was a band, it was genuine, it was honest, it was heartfelt. Everything that you place stock into musically uh, was there, and everybody was trying their fucking hardest to uh just represent it was it was it, that was that was a good moment i mean uh and and conditions sucked 
uh, for that. I mean, cause I mean, we were playing a lot of shitholes, you know, and, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, the best conditions. It was definitely on a budget, you know, um, and everybody kind of sucked it up and got over it, man. And just kind of did what we set out to do. And that was, that was pretty cool. That's when I was, uh, you know, that first run is when I was still up on the stage with them mixing monitors uh, before necessity and budget forced me to uh, go out front. Now, you had mentioned, uh, you know, uh, concerns about budget. Is that what ultimately led to, in later runs, the band going from a 10-piece to a, to a six-piece unit? Oh, um, yeah, it was unsustainable, man. You know, I was uh, I was the production manager and on the second one as a production manager, tour manager, and front of house engineer. I had three hats on the second run, only two hats on the first run, monitor guy, production manager. You know, and production manager is how I ended up with the uh, at, at wrapping up my career with the Black Crows as well. So it was not an uh, unusual role for me uh, with that band, but the budget and the guarantees were much higher. Uh, so it was easier to function. Uh, if we needed two trucks, we got two trucks. You know, um, this was, uh, this was um, unsustainable in its fashion, especially with the 10 individuals um just there was no way it, there weren't enough of y'all coming to the shows and there weren't enough of y'all buying re- the records you know and so uh without that you're forced into a smaller um less um less optimum venues and uh as a result of that your um, bottom line suffers and uh Really, the only way that anybody's making any money these days is by touring, which none of us are doing right now, uh, is by touring and selling T-shirts. You know, that's what keeps this live music that we all cherish so much alive is you got to come out, you know. And so if nobody's coming out or if a couple of hundred people in a 1000 capacity venue are coming out, it's not. You know, Rich came out of the gate with all the best intentions. I got to tell you, he really did. Um, but he wanted to be surrounded by his A-team, uh, and that's band and crew. And the A-team doesn't come cheap, you know. And just all the hotel rooms and all the flights and all the per diems and all of those things that go into that equation, uh, especially for a 10-piece band, becomes highly unsustainable if, if the guarantees aren't all. Flipping back to... Uh how hard it was to sustain a 10-piece band. I think a lot of fans don't understand that aspect of it, that if they don't come out to the shows, if they don't purchase yeah. the records, if they don't do this, then the the band ultimately suffers in terms of where they can present themselves and, and even just stay together. So from an, from an outside perspective, it looked like the Magpie Salute ended kind of abruptly. I mean, but maybe perhaps from the inside it wasn't like that. I mean, what was was it a surprise to you when it ended, or, or was it uh, something that it progressively seemed like it was going to happen because of the financial aspect? Well, I wasn't there at the absolute end of it, but um, by the time I had departed, things were financially challenging. I was in the process of trying to put together a European tour when uh, I made my exit, European and Japan tour, uh, when my exit was made for me, frankly. It was... Uh, financially challenging to try to move that down the road in the fashion to which many of the um, participants had become accustomed. And so it was um, hemorrhaging uh, cash, to put it bluntly. Um, 
yeah, there was just not enough punters at the gigs, man. Not enough uh, faithful, not enough Americans, not enough new casual fans. Uh, rock and roll is a very difficult sell these days, boys. Uh, you know, uh, especially the um, traditional rock and roll. It's very difficult to, um, no matter how good the material is, and those are two solid rock and roll albums, I got to tell you. No matter how good the material is, man, if people don't come out and see it, you're not going to go anywhere. You know, I, I mean, you're sure you got your point zero 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 one six cent for every Spotify sling or every Pandora spent, but that's not that's not going to do it. You know, I think ultimately there's a misconception about streaming services like Spotify and and Pandora. <laughs> I think fans think that artists make. What they would make if they bought the same as if they bought a, a record or a CD or something. No, and that's no. simply not the case. No, no, no. The real, you know, uh, we're talking about mailbox money here, and the mailbox money for the artist, you know, you gotta, you gotta buy the records or at least do the MP3 download, purchase the MP3 download if you if you want to stay in that lacking realm of ones and zeros over your computer and and uh, feel your music in a choked and compressed fashion. By all means still support the artist and buy the mp3 download but you know really man uh go out and get a turntable and uh, <laughs> hook it up to the phono input of your uh your device or buy a phono stage and spin vinyl you know i'm gonna just i'm just gonna go out on a soapbox here with that one and i'm just gonna say man go buy some vinyl <laughs> See, now you you mentioned um mp3 and compressed quality are you obviously you you are you're a uh, a proponent of sound. Obviously, that was your line of work. But uh, do you, a lot of people don't say they can't hear the difference with MP3s. I, I find them to be very compressed and very lifeless. I I, I agree that the vinyl is definitely the way to go. When you when you this is a, a such a, a contentious sort of discussion. Spinning a piece of vinyl and putting a diamond down in it, the character that is produced from that is non quantifiable. You can't put it into some sort of um, easily digestible mathematical uh, uh, explanation. You know what I mean? It's not. Uh, it, it is a. It's a feel thing. And and to me, the whole experience of buying somebody's record and being able to see the artwork in full size and you make an event out of listening to it. It's not something that you're doing while something else is going on to. And I think that's where uh, uh, the music delivery forms. There's nothing wrong with MP3s. There really isn't. But the music delivery methodology of uh, a piece of vinyl in your hands and that big cover and, uh, you know, uh, artwork and and text that you don't have to break out a magnifying glass uh, to see, it's part of an experience, you know. And so many artists go into such great lengths to, uh, to, to tailor that artwork, you know, to uh, target their audience and to maybe give them a message or two in that artwork. It's a real pity when it's just a, a jewel case, if you want to use an old antiquated format, the CD, that ends up on the floor of the, the car or in uh, just that little graphic image that pops up in your iTunes. You know, you're never going to look deeper than that, uh, the average listener. And so uh, I think that that half of the experience is gone. And, you know, buying some vinyl helps support the artist, man. It really does. Uh, it's a good, a good thing. Even purchasing the MP3 download helps to support the artist. Which artists are you uh, currently supporting? What's, uh, what are you listening to these days? I just downloaded a whole bunch of classic MP3 stuff because I wanted to build a stick. 
And the stick I wanted to build was for my upcoming pavilion season, my outdoor gig where I could just put a stick into the thing for set change and let it roll, you know, which is a great tool for an MP3, you know. So I downloaded everything from, I don't know, Chambers Brothers to Medeski Martin and Wood to uh, the Budos Band to um, just all, all sorts of all sorts of stuff. I'm, I'm all over the place, man. I am uh, currently digging uh, a lot uh, what St. Vincent has put out. You know, I'm, I'm grooving on St. Vincent a whole bunch. I like all my standbys, too, man. You know, there's there's still so much for me to discover in both Zappa's catalog and Dylan's catalog that it kind of boggles the mind, you know, that there's like so much music and so little time. That's a lot of what I listen to. I don't listen to uh, much of people with whom I have worked until I get a lot of distance between me and it. Are you still touring with bands? Are you still doing that or... Now, I uh, I did uh, another tour after the Magpie Salute. I did a, a thing with a bunch of old Frank Zappa alumni and a holographic Frank Zappa uh, as our star, uh, which was really, really intense. We did a little Europe and um, a little bit of U.S. And uh, technologically speaking, it's the most demanding gig I've ever done, and I relished it. And I have never been around such musical nerds in all my life. <laughs> We did 30 days of rehearsals uh, in L.A. before we did the full first full production rehearsal. And to watch cats like that dissect eight to ten bars of a movement of a Zappa piece, you know, to take one piece of music and just totally uh, uh, dissect it and embrace it was something like I've never seen before. It was uh, it was startling. So the answer to your question, I'm sorry, I got to answer no, there. Uh, the answer to the question is I'm currently, uh, off the road. Um, I found myself a production management and a stage management gig, um, at a couple of venues here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, that are, um, really state of the art joints. Uh, one is a approximately 2,500 cap GA rock club, uh, that's, uh, made out of a, a completely transformed old theater. We can do about 1,000 seated or about 2,500 standing. And then the other one is an outdoor performance pavilion, the Sweetwater Performance Pavilion. I am now employed by uh, Sweetwater uh, here in Fort Wayne, who is a uh, worldwide music retailer, among other things. They also have uh, live concerns, uh, and I handle all production aspects for uh, the one venue and stage manage and do some you know, some audio engineering uh, at both venues as well. And so I am sleeping in my own bed. I am not fighting uh, the airlines. I'm not creating uh, carnets to take a bunch of equipment to Europe. I am, you know, I am not going from one endless stream of hotels to another for the first time since, well, early in the Clinton administration. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to ask you this, Drew, a, a, a artist that I've really been pushing is, is Marcus King. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I did a gig with him last year. He came into the pavilion that I work in. Oh, cool. Uh, so, you know, Sarkin was out there, uh, you know, working as TM, uh, Brian Sarkin, who had been a longtime crew member of the, uh, of the Black Crows and of Chris Robinson Brotherhood. Uh, is Marcus King's guy now. And so it was cool hooking up with Sarkin, cool seeing the band. I think he is, um, I think Marcus King is um, maturing, you know, into what Marcus King will be. This is my personal opinion. I think he's wonderful. 
the band was hot the, and the, the whole, uh, the experience was good. It was, uh, definitely in no way displeasing. It was a good day at the office. Well, Drew, it's been a good day at the office for us. Oh, it's absolutely. We really appreciate you coming on. It's been totally fantastic. I do want to wrap up with uh, just one more question for you because this is something I was present for. And I just want to know the origins of it. I saw you do the beef curtain lollipop opening uh, slot on the Magpie tour. How did that? Uh, how did you get to do that? Well, that's kind of a part of a long history. Do you got enough time for kind of a long? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the joys. Uh, of being out there is to have a decent roadie band, you know, uh, as a crew guy. Because, I mean, you got all the gear, it's there, it's set up, you know, you're waiting on musos to show up at three or four o'clock in the afternoon to do a sound check. Hell, a lot of times we're done by noon, uh, 30 or one o'clock, you know, so what are you going to do? You're going to tune some guitars and maybe go out and bang out a song or two. Well, Redler and myself and Randy Brown have been in several iter- iterations of bands. I mean, we've gone back as far as a band called Donkey Punch. And uh, when Redler <laughs> left to go do Dixie Chick or something, he sent us a cease and desist order from his lawyers saying we couldn't use the name Donkey Punch anymore. So we then changed the roadie band name to Donkey Punch UK and uh, got around that one. And then uh, time moved on and we, uh, we ended up uh, getting a, a band called Bunk Sock. Uh, which Bunk Sock went through several iterations for a while. After Bunk Sock, we got we came into a band that was uh, named by Rich Robinson Shit Pistol. Uh, when we <laughs> first when we first started um, uh, putting together some of the Sex Pistols tunes that we did uh, instead of Sex Pistols, he said, "Yeah, that's Shit Pistol." And I'm like, yeah, right on. Popped the name, and then. Um, he kept floating a whole bunch of names past us. He really wanted to name the next roadie band. And uh, we went we went down this pike. I remember walking, like, when we first went over to Europe on the first Magpie run, walking around Amsterdam, throwing around band names. And, you know, some of, the, some of the ones were just absolutely hilarious. But I got stuck on Beef Curtain Lollipop, and Redler wasn't into it. But I think... Uh, I think uh, uh, Randy Brown, our drummer, was. And so I'm just like, Rich liked the name. I liked the name. I thought it was fucking hilarious. And I mean, you don't want to name a roadie band something serious. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that was that was a that was a real joy. He's like, I want you guys to open one of the New York shows. You, It's like, how, how long was set? He's like, one song. <laughs> I'm like, perfect. So I don't know if you guys saw the set lists or anything. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, you picked a good list. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's perfect for roadies, man. It's pretty vacant. <laughs> yeah, we definitely, we really appreciate you coming on, Drew. And, and um, you know, typically we ask our guests to uh, select the uh, playout music that we use for each episode. So is there a particular Black Crows or Magpie song that sticks out in your mind that you'd like the uh, our listening audience to hear one more time? Play us out on Hotel Illness. Absolutely. That's a favorite of David, so you won't get any arguments there. And, uh Once again, we really appreciate you coming on. We'll see everybody next week. Thanks very much, and stay tall.
Let's go!